0: We're continuing on in Judges chapter 17. This morning we'll be concentrating on verses seven through thirteen and seventeen. Um, Anarchy Reigns, part two is the title of the sermon. As we know, there's the, the Lord provides guidance to us through his word. There's it touches on on many. Different subjects. Um, we know, of course, that the Bible warns us against sloth, laziness, being a sluggard. But we're also cautioned against excessive busyness. And it was not my intention to preach on this on Mother's Day, because I know each of you that our mothers have raised children. Um, live a life of excess busyness. I've seen it with my wife Karen and I've seen it with my mother um, but, it is, but it's something that, um, that I want to touch on because it, it, it leads us into the points that we're going to see in this section of Judges. So really if, if laziness is bad how can hard work or industriousness How can that be bad, the opposite of that? Well, it's not in and of itself, but it can skew our priorities, and and that's really what I want to start out with. It can cause us to lose focus on what is most important. If we become simply task-orientated, we are going to not be focused on perhaps things that we should be picking up on, things that we should be thinking of. And I think the best example, one that many of us are familiar with, comes from the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. And it's a a little story about uh, Martha and her sister Mary. And they had received Jesus and his disciples into their home. And these two women, along with their brother Lazarus, were devoted disciples of Christ. And they loved him dearly. So you can imagine having your master coming to your home and what you would do in preparation. Well, in all of this, Martha is frustrated with her sister Mary not helping with the serving and all of the hostess duties that, that must be done to, to, to care for. You know, not just entertain, but to care for, to feed and comfort this band of itinerant men that follow this rabbi from Galilee. Mary prefers to sit at Jesus' feet and to listen to what he has to say. Now, there's much, much good in this as we find out. Because Martha, she vents to Jesus. She complains to him about Mary. And Jesus says to her, Martha, Martha. You are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary: Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her so This is really an enacted parable that we're seeing this is an event that occurred, but it it has a uh if you will a moral it has a teaching theme to it, and the gospel writer Luke uses this account for the specific purpose in in the way he's inspired. We are not to be so caught up in our busy lives that we pay scant attention, lose focus, that is, on things of eternal value. There are things in our homes that cry out for our attention constantly. But they will continually cry out, won't they? That dust that we remove from the tops of our furniture will be there, at least in this area, probably by the end of the day, with as much dust as we have. And, um, these things are important, but we must set our priorities. Frequently, our lives seem hectic, don't they? Perhaps even, even frenetic. They're such, at such a fast pace that it seems Crazy. It's crammed with too much to do and not enough time to do it. We feel like we are constantly, constantly in a rush. So coupled with this incessant crush of our to-do list lives are distractions that contribute to our loss of focus. It's just one thing after another that demands our attention, making it hard for us to have focus on the eternal, the things that truly matter. Example, social media. YouTube, they have, they have videos called shorts, less than 60 seconds long. Try to keep, it tries to keep your attention for just under a minute. The TikTok videos, originally limited to seven seconds, very short um, you know, so, you, you know, most people can pay attention for, for seven seconds. Um, Twitter tweets used to be no more than 140 characters. Well, it's interesting that Twitter and TikTok have both increased their limits. It's not that they're concerned, um, in my opinion, with the fact that our attention spans are being diminished, if not destroyed, by, by this constant barrage of needing to see what's next as we scroll on our phones. No, I think it's just, it's just a matter of uh, re-engaging people that have gotten bored with, with these platforms, so they've, they've expanded them. Along these lines, I would say when it comes to our learning things, our, our, our development really as, as people, we can make two basic classifications. We have perishable skills and non-perishable skills. Perishable skills are those which require frequent use or practice to maintain. Non-perishable skills are those which of, of which we might say, like the old saying, it's just like riding a bike. You know, if you learn how to ride a bike, you know, you'll be able to get on a bike and ride it again, even years down the road. Once you've learned how to do these certain non-perishable skills, you generally don't lose the ability. While conversely, a perishable skill is one that requires attention and focus. One must, as the saying goes, use it or lose it. Language is a good example of this. So concentration and focus, I would say, are skills that we could categorize as perishable although seemingly innate or natural in some people, these are abilities that the rest of us, most of us I think, must cultivate and we must cultivate them intentionally to be able to to focus and concentrate without our minds wandering onto other things. And the perishable skills of language coupled with concentration and focus, these are our keys to reading or listening with comprehension. That is understanding both the broad ideas and the small details at the same time. Now that's, that's a very difficult task, really, you know. Um, and many of us do it without thinking. Um, but when you get in situations where you have to see, you have to know the big picture and also concentrate on a small portion of it and be able to shift back and forth is really an art, almost. It, it is something that is, that is really not as widely um, uh, an ability of, of most people. Uh, I saw this specifically when I was a SWAT team sergeant and was part of the process of choosing, selecting men for the special weapons team. That we needed men that could take an order on a broad picture. This is our mission. This is what we are to accomplish. And you are to carry out your orders on this mission, but you are also need to, at times, deviate rapidly from your orders and from the mission as things change. Well, of course, All of our volunteers that were well-tenured, experienced police officers. And it was amazing how difficult it was to find men that could do both of these things. You could find men that could follow the exact order but were unable to deviate. Like, well, Sarge, you told me to do this. Yeah, but this changed, so you needed to do that. Or ones that would just lose complete sight of the big picture because all of a sudden, like like a, a retriever where a ball's thrown. Something attracts their attention and they're off. And they say, where were you? This was your assignment. Well, I saw this. and This is, this is really something that we have to, to work on. And it comes to play. What does this have to do with the Bible? It comes, it comes to, into our ability to understand the stories, the details in them, and then fit them into the big picture of the Bible as a whole, how do we understand these things? So honing these abilities to help us comprehend biblical narrative and focus on these key elements in order to analyze what we read, this is not something that Satan or even our own flesh really wants us to do. We're much more entertained, we're much more pleased to scroll you know, quickly through our phone and be entertained for 15 seconds at a time rather than sitting down, closing out the outside world basically and concentrating on what the Lord has to to say to us. So now we're going to continue with the epilogue of Judges that we have been in. And we're going to see things. We're going to see little details. They're very important in this story of Micah. The Levite and the Danites. Repetitions of things that we are to pick up on. Themes that are under the, the, the surface level of the story that are important for us to grasp. This is the last of, this, of the two major narratives of the book of Judges that we're dealing with. And we started this last week. and As you recall, and just a short recap, if you, if you weren't with us, we met Micah or Mikah Yehu, whose name means who is like Yahweh. And this point in the story, he's no longer called by his full name, as his actions deny the superlativeness of Yahweh. Well, Micah and his mother have commissioned a carved metal image, the Pesel and Masakah we talked about a lot last week. And they concentrated this image to Yahweh. They made an idol for the one true God. And in addition to this, Micah, who we might say is an overachiever when it comes to pagan stuff, made an ephod, or a priestly garment, and teraphim, or household gods, ordinarily small terracotta figurines that were kind of thought of in the idea of good luck charms in the ancient Near East. And... He ordains one of his sons to become his priest. All of this to set up what the English Standard Version calls his shrine, which is literally, in Hebrew, his house of gods. And as we go through this narrative, we will find, as we do with all biblical narratives, like I has mentioned, details are important. Facts that seem trivial when first presented are discovered later to be in tension with or juxtaposed against later details in the account. And these are things the writer intends for us to pick up on. As a way of illustration, as we proceed through this story in a somewhat episodic fashion, it reminded me of a very involved novel of the British Victorian era, specifically something by Charles Dickens. And as time usually prevents preachers from making a proper exposition of, uh, of a full biblical account, generally we have to take it a piece at a time. Um, we must break it into episodes. This is how Charles Dickens wrote his novels from first to last. They were all first published in episodes, in serials, in, in magazines. Only later were they presented in book form. And you know, well what, what does that matter? I mean, we, we're not living in Victoria in England. OK, let's talk about a current contemporary example. A TV dramatic series is basically the same thing. If you were to watch um, uh, a drama that is not a stan- does not have standalone episodes, but tells a continuing story. Uh for example, a great one that has recently been out is a new um, production of all creatures, great and small and um, it, if you haven't watched that it's a it's a finally there's a, there seems to be a, a f- something that the family can sit down and watch, and it speaks of values that are biblical in nature, not you know not overtly Christian, but from a time when society was by and large, Christian. So when we read Dickens' novel one installment at a time, or we watch uh, a TV show, um, we have to hold on to details that may uh, prove pertinent later in future installments of the story. Um, Just like our TV show, if we're watching that um, with the continuing storyline. Um, we must we must bear in mind, you know, why did, why is this happening? You know, and we'll find out later why this is happening. And sometimes that can be difficult. And um, we we do not in, in this sort of format we don't have immediate access to why things are are occurring, and we want to know that because we're we're used to instantaneous information now. Same thing in the Bible when we're reading these narrative accounts. Um, The the, the human writer is not always inspired to tell you, okay, pay attention to this because it's going to come up later and it means a lot. No, generally that's not going to be the case. You're going to read it or hear it and you're going to have to pick up on this unless you have someone helping you um, with this. Dickens, back to Charles Dickens, I think undoubtedly he borrowed from the the example of biblical narrative. He masterfully presents concepts that are in opposition uh, to one another. He points this out in a line in his first novel, The Pickwick Papers, where he, he writes, I quote, There are dark shadows on the earth, but its lights are stronger in the contrast. Now, this really is a core principle in biblical, uh, in in interpretation of biblical narrative, the dark shadows of sin cause the light of Christ to shine ever more bright. That's what we should be seeing. So my point thus far is not to inform you on the publishing practices of Victorian-era England or compare Dickens' writing to a television series. Rather, it is to clarify the importance of detail in the biblical narrative, presented to us in the various genres, the various styles that we encounter in God's Word, the the epic, the tragic, the lyric, or the comedic literary style, but in which is always contained the message of salvation or a component of it, or it points us to the author of our salvation, Jesus Christ. And i like to make a point here. This is my first point this morning, Every human story is connected to the word of God. Every human story is connected to the word of God. Human beings are naturally storytellers. We're naturally story hearers. There's a danger, some I, I believe, of this, this being lost in our current day and age. There are things that are turning us away from this natural way that God has designed us. And we're going to miss out on a lot by turning away from this idea, Um, especially God speaking to us through his revealed word, through the written word. We need to be open to this fact of story in in order to see it. Because we're in a culture that suppresses Christ as far as Christ can be suppressed, as far as... The triune God allows that. So we may need to work at this a bit. But once you start looking for it, it is there. You'll find it. All human endeavors, I would say, must address the issues that God's word lays before us. Try as they might, wicked humanity cannot escape from God's presence, even in the realm of fiction and theater. You start, if you look For Christ, in your daily life, in things you encounter, you will see Christ there. I'm reminded of um, a writer, uh, I think it was Flannery O'Connor, a Southern Gothic writer. And she wrote of the Christ-drenched world, where she started to notice, she was ostensibly a Christian. I don't know how deep her faith was. I think she was Roman Catholic. But she started to notice symbolism and signs of Christ every place once she started looking. And I think this is a very true thing that we can see how vital our Lord is to the the world and the evidence of his imprint upon us. So now let's dive into the passage for today Judges 17, 7 through 13. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, Stay with me, be a father to me. And a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year, and a suit of clothes, and your living. And the Levite went in, and the Levite was content to dwell with the man. And the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordered, excuse me, Micah ordained the Levite. And the young man became his priest, and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me, because I have a Levite as priest. So we have a new character introduced to our story. Starts off, now there was a young man. He's introduced in the same way, same language, same syntax, as we met Micah in, in verse 1 of this chapter. But there's a major difference. He's described with this Hebrew word, Naar, which is translated in the ESV as young man. So this Hebrew word really refers to a, a boy uh, from Anywhere from infancy uh, up to through adolescence. So it's kind of a wide range. But it's not young man in the way we think of a young man. It's not, it's not necessarily a guy, you know, um, in his, in his mid-20s, let's say. So this youthful Levite's age is important in respect to the irregularity of Micah's later appointment of him as priest. Because as a Levite... The, the, the men did not commence their religious service, according to the book, the, B, the first part of the book of Numbers, until they were 30 years of age. Now, apparently, there was a shortage; they didn't have enough. And later in the book of Numbers, we read that the, the, um, the group of men who were to serve was, was widened as far as age-wise, and, and they began to start serving at the, uh, at the age of 25. That's just trivia, really not pertinent to this, because the point is, is this youth was not yet mature enough to engage in religious duties. He was too young to serve as a Levite, much less a priest. In the second half of verse 7, he comes to, uh, he says he's of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. Okay, this could be, it's a little bit confusing. Um, He is not of the tribe of Judah. Levites are of a separate tribe. He is of the tribe of Levi, living in the tribal allotment of Judah. The Levites, as you may know, did not have a specific territory allotted to them. They were to live amongst all the other tribes and provide religious services to them. And he describes himself as a sojourner, which means he has no patriarchal rights to the land. No Levite does, other than certain small villages and pastor lands that were given to them. Um, but he's allowed to legally reside where he was in Judah. And we're told in verses 8 and 9 in the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. So Micah asked him, where do you come from? And before he answers that, he declares his, his tribal connection or his, his professional class as a Levite. So is there a hint of pride here? Is he, is he proud because he's a Levite? Or is there something more? Is there perhaps something opportunistic in this? His answer to where he comes from is followed by him declaring what he is seeking. And this is an opportunity or as he puts it, he's looking for a place. And where he finds opportunity, he will live or sojourn there for as long or as short as it lasts. So the writer, in in letting us hear this conversation play out between Micah and the Na'ir, reveals this is a meeting between two opportunists. This brings us quickly to our second point, point number two, which is favorable circumstances for your sinful desires are not signs of God's favor. Favorable circumstances for your sinful desires are not signs of God's favor. Just because the missing ingredient for your apostasy soup happens to show up at your door doesn't mean that God wants you to cook up a big pot of it. This is what's going on here with Micah. The idea that the Lord will bless you by or through your sinning is erroneous. And it's it's something that all human beings fall prey to. All human beings of all time, let's say. For example, if you're having marital difficulties and another person catches your eye, this is not the Lord providing a new spouse for you so you can get rid of your troubles and move on. The Lord is not going to break up your family to give you a new family. This is not how God operates. He doesn't operate by presenting us with sin, God expects us, in my example, to be faithful to our marriage vows, not finagle a way to, to break them. Although, of course, there are, there are legitimate biblical reasons for divorce. That's not what I'm speaking of. I'm speaking of the wandering eye, the desire of the flesh. And there are many other sorts of examples we could use. But the idea is, is that you know, we have ways of twisting Events And somehow showing that this is really the Lord's doing. And he's bringing us something that we need. And this is what's going on with with Micah right now. Micah says to this young man, stay with me and be to me a father and a priest. Micah is appealing to the Naar's homeless sojourning. He's basically saying to him, you don't have to sojourn. You have a home here. I'll give you a home. So Micah apparently has enough knowledge of true Israelite religion to make the connection between the tribe of Levi and priests. But it's only the descendants of Aaron within the tribe of Levi that can serve as priests other Levite men, which would be the vast majority of them, are only in support roles of the Aaronic priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood. So this boy, remember the Nair, how can he be a father to Micah? Micah says, be a father to me. Micah himself is a father. We've been told that. He ordained one of his sons, didn't he, who became his priest. So father is often used in the Old Testament implying an ability to bring the word of Yahweh uh, to others, either through the means of an oracle, such as the Urim and Thummim, used by the high priest, or through a more direct means of communication um, by God through a prophet, as an example. Elisha the prophet is referred to as father by several kings in Israel and Syria. Um, In religious matters, this Levite youth was to be a father to Micah, in Micah's mind. In other words, Micah would consult him on religious matters and listen to him, believing that he was a channel of divine communication. Even though the Levite is unqualified to legitimately be a priest of Yahweh. He's too young. He's probably, although we're not told, but I think if he was of the clan of Aaron, we would be told that. So he's probably not in the proper lineage to be a priest. And due to both of these points, he would also be untrained in priestly duties. He would not really know what to do much. He would be making it up as he goes along, but obviously that's fine with Micah because he seems to be making up a lot of stuff as he goes along. So the insecurity of Micah in this proposition is obvious even though he has built his own shrine installed his own gods arranged for the proper accoutrements or the priestly vestments and dedicated his own son as a priest he must be plagued by doubts and instead of relying on a system of worship that has been designed by god he has made up his own religion we must remember, if, if God is God, then only He can tell us how He is to be worshiped. We cannot decide that we 're going to worship this way or that way that 's simply not how how it 's done and obviously, there are some things that you know that we 're not clear on where we differentiate from our our Christian brethren of other denominations, baptism being one of them but The essentials of our worship are all the same. And in a man-made religion, such expressions of faith can never satisfy the needs or the doubts of the human soul. They always fall short and leave their followers disappointed and wanting more, looking for other means to fill the void We probably, all of us, have have know people or at least heard or read of people that go from one religion to another, never finding one that meets their needs. They're in, you know, New Age religion, then they're Buddhists, then they're something else, and they're always reinventing the gods that they worship, which brings me to point number three. God's established means of worship are not to be modified to meet our felt needs. God's established means of worship are not to be modified to meet our felt needs. Our worship is not designed to make us feel better. That's not the primary point. Now, I am not saying that we will not feel better if we worship. I always have an improvement in my attitude and in my spirit when I worship God. But that's not the primary purpose, is it? No, our primary purpose is God himself, to give him worship. Why? Because he is deserving. He alone is deserving of our worship. That's why we do it. He is our creator. We are his creatures. He is our savior. We are his saved flock. So the text that we're reading today reveals to us that this this modifying worship is not just a modern problem. It's been going on for ages. Even though we perhaps may think that this has reached a crescendo in our age. It just seems to be amplified so much. But really our church services that are patterned after a nightclub experience, much different from Micah's pagan temple of gods? I don't think so. Recently, in fact just yesterday, as I was finishing up this sermon, my daughters and I were were chatting on one of the social platforms, and one of them brought to my attention... (laughs) This is this is for real. I checked into it because I thought it was just one of those, you know, satire type things like Babylon B, but it wasn't from Babylon B. It's the AI-powered pastor, the artificial intelligence powered pastor. Includes, if you buy this, it includes the chatbot to superpower your sermons. Have you guys heard of this stuff? I haven't. It just blew my mind. I, I had to check it out. <laughs> I didn't buy it. I promise you. <laughs> really, this, 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 this. We must ask: Would God use artificial intelligence to deliver His gospel? <laughs> no. In case you have any doubts, no. Absolutely not. God wants His human image bearers to deliver the gospel. And the pitch in this in this ad is that the artificial intelligence. Frees pastors from tedious time wasters. Preaching a sermon is a tedious time waster. Now I can think of some so-called pastors in some churches where yeah that would probably be the case. But let me tell you every pastor, every preacher that I know personally does not think of preaching as as time wasting. This is what this is what we are compelled to do. This is what we love to do. It allows pastors, quote, to focus on the heart of your ministry, end quote. If God's word is not at the heart of our ministry, then what is? This is this is craziness right here. And this is what we're seeing. I thought the the nightclub churches, you know, with the with the strobe lights in the dark and you can't see and you have to have a bouncer. I mean, an usher, you know, guides you in. And, you know, the fog machine and, and you can't hear anything because the mu- music's blasting and they're dancing on the stage, you know, and you can't hear your, na- your neighbor singing, I almost said him, but well, they're not gonna be singing a him, the, the contemporary Christian uh, music. I thought that was bad until I met the AI-powered pastor. Anyway, I read a newspaper article about this because I checked into it. I was like, I, I don't believe, I don't know. I'm not convinced that this is, this is for real. And I found a newspaper article where they talked to clergy, not all pastors. They talked to clergy. There was rabbis and there were some women from certain churches um, that used this artificial intelligence. And some of them said it was great. One rabbi said, I had it write a sermon for me, um, and then I presented it, uh, and I told my congregation, I told them, it, this, is, this, is, this is written by someone else. This is, this, I, I'm plagiarizing this. He told them. And he reads it, and they were, he said, they were so taken by it that they applauded, it. And then he told them, that was written by artificial intelligence. Well, I don't know what his regular preaching is like, so... You know, his, his congregation was happy with it. But so there was, there was varied reviews, but several of the pastors did happen to say, well, technically it was well written. I, you know, I had it write a sermon for me, and technically it was good, but it was missing something. And then one pastor, believe it or not, he uh, was a Baptist, he says, it had no soul. There's no soul in that. That's very true, isn't it? When, when we take... The, the spirit of God out of it and we take our souls out of it that God has given us our spirits we're left with something that maybe looks perfect but is not it is not what God has designed God has designed us with all our weaknesses and flaws to be his representatives to spread the gospel to preach the word Back to Micah, the second part of verse 10. He tells the Naar, I will give you 10 pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in. So Levitical law, in case you didn't know, has no provision for salaries for the priests or the, or the Levites. They were not getting paid money. Their food was provided through the sacrificial offering. They were allowed a portion of that that's how they ate that's how they put food on their table and they were given certain towns and pasture lands within the different tribal allotments for their sustenance to to uh, for their flocks and to live so this is essentially this is such a departure from what a a an orthodox priest at the time would expect and would be would be receiving, this is essentially a bribe offered to the Levite to entice him. Now, Micah is enticing this this young man or boy to do what he wants. Now Micah, as we've seen in the story, obviously comes from money on his mother's side, right? He's a man of means and he's willing to be generous with his health in order to get in with God or God's with a little g. For Micah, it doesn't seem to matter one or the other. And Micah got what he wanted. In verses 11 and 12, this, we're told that the Levite was content to dwell with the man. And the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite. And the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. The house of Micah. The Naar... Obviously is also happy with the arrangement Micah proposed in religious matters, just to figure out the dynamics here, um, it is this young boy who's the father to Micah while in domestic affairs by implication from what we read here, it is Micah who is a father to the Levite. Now this is really odd you 've got you know uh, this this boy in a position of authority yet not always in a position of authority. The the, the hat of authority passes back and forth fairly freely. I don't imagine that there are hard and distinct lines between their idol worship and their daily life in Micah's house. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest. Just as we saw earlier in verse 5, where... Micah ordains his own son. Micah, we see here, at least has a rudimentary understanding of religious protocol, that an ordination must take place so this young man can function as a priest. Micah performs this rite of ordination on the Naar. In Hebrew, this word that we Have translated as ordination is a phrase. It it means literally, he filled his hands. And contextually, we shouldn't miss the double meaning here Micah filled the Levite's hands with silver as part of the priestly ordination bargain. Ironically, Micah is able to fill the hands of the Levite because Micah filled his own hands with his mother's silver without which there would have not been a pestle and masakah, the carved metal image that served in their Yahweh worship. So in most Old Testament passages, this phrase um, that we see here for ordination does refer to the consecration of, of priests. So that's accurate. But if we trace this phrase back in time etymologically speaking we come to a very very similar almost identical phrase in a more ancient Semitic language Akkadian and it means the same thing and we know from Akkadian records that this phrase to them refers to the placement of some symbol of authority into the hands of the person being installed that's why we have this and with Micah, I think we can see that silver is the symbol of authority. It's monetary. Our fourth point, point number four. Your employer's disregard for God is no excuse for you to disregard God. Your employer's disregard for God is no excuse for you to disregard God. And you could strike employer and put any thing in authority over you that you want but I think it fits here in this account because Micah is obviously the employer of the Naar even though the priests the Levitical priests are in actuality to be serving only Yahweh they are not to be employed by other people so this young Levite he's not faultless in this Micah's lead role and his offer to this youngster, who's in a time of need, we would surmise, he's traveling on his own. He's nowhere near home. He's looking for a place. This does not alleviate his his responsibility. This young man, I would say, is akin to someone in our day and age—a a teenager raised in the church. He's been around worship since infancy. He has, by this time, he's learned and observed. Much And God has placed him in this position of advantage in his life. And we're all responsible for the level of knowledge that we are providentially given. And just circumstantially, I would say, this young man has been given quite a lot of knowledge. He would, at the very least, have known that Micah's house of gods was forbidden by Yahweh's law. And yet he enters in. Micah's action posed a direct challenge to the officially authorized Aaronic priesthood. And this boy actively engaged in going against it. Now, I think we should answer the the question or deal with the term priest. What exactly is a priest? Or in Hebrew, the Kohen. You see Jewish people, a Jewish name, Kohen. It comes from this, this term for priest. People, usually that aren't, you know, really familiar with um, Christianity, don't see or don't realize there's a difference between a pastor, a minister, and a priest. In the biblical context, as well as in the broader ancient Near East cultures, the priest functions as a mediator between humans and God or gods. As do priests in so-called Christian denominations today. They are another mediator between God and his people. Originally, the entire nation of Israel, according to Exodus 19.6, was to be a kingdom of priests and a holy Nation. However, after the institution of the Mosaic Covenant at Sinai, and remember, things had go, were going really bad. The Israelites were like on their own program now. The tribe of Levi then was designated for special religious service. And the family of Aaron within the tribe of Levi was ordained to the priesthood. And they alone were to be priests to the Lord. The Aaronic priests were representatives of Yahweh, to the people. They were responsible for teaching God's instructions for life and for holiness. They were to lead the people in appropriate worship of God, the one true God. They were also tasked with the discernment of Yahweh's will, both in general and in difficult legal situations. They were to bless the people in Yahweh's name and assess the people's ritual cleanliness so that Yahweh may dwell with them in their camp. Conversely, the Aaronic priests also represented Israel before God, offering sacrifices to God on the people's behalf. Although the priests weren't normally the ones who killed the sacrificial animal, the priest sprinkled its blood on the altar on behalf of the person who had offered the sacrifice. Now this form of priesthood passed away with the coming of the New covenant. The New Testament book of Hebrews describes Jesus Christ as the high priest of the new covenant after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is this figure we read about in Genesis 14 who combines the role of king and priest, which is normally not to be done. And in the Dead Sea Scrolls, Melchizedek appears as a messianic figure. In those writings. And, and also in Psalm 110, there's a messianic connotation to Melchizedek. So, under Christ, our great high priest, the New Testament reveals that all believers are priests, in a sense, echoing God's original decree for Israel back in Exodus, which now has been reinstated and is eternally true. For spiritual Israel, which is Christ's church, which is us. But as far as sacrifices go, Jesus presented the once for all time blood sacrifice on the cross. Once for all time. There are not to be any more sacrifices of blood to be made. Nor are there to be any so-called bloodless sacrifices repetitions of christ's sacrifice to do so is to deny the efficacy and finality of our lord's great sacrifice for us as if we could improve upon it or accomplish more than he's accomplished this in fact is another another gospel that paul warns us about he writes to the the galatians in chapter one verse six he says I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. This is what we do when we follow the type of pattern we see with Micah. We turn to another gospel. So then how are we as Christians, priests... This could be a bit confusing. Let's, let's try and, and um, illuminate this a bit. Peter explains that um, in his first letter, 1 Peter two five, that we are a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices accept, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And what are our spiritual sacrifices? Our spiritual sacrifices, Paul says in Romans 12.1, our, our bodies, our bodies are a living sacrifice to God. And the author of Hebrews 13.15 writes a sacri- about a sacrifice of praise to God with our lips. So but what does this mean to present our bodies as living sacrifices to God? First off, it means it's, it's vital that we do this. Because, because Paul, in his writing, he, he urges, he exhorts us to do so. That we are to do this with the utmost importance and so a living sacrifice is voluntary right? unlike the Old Testament's animal sacrifices none of those animals volunteered to be slaughtered and to be killed we do not take the life of another creature rather we give our own lives we are to separate ourselves set ourselves apart for God this is what it means to be holy And this cannot be done apart from deliberate. That is intentional action on our parts. It is not compelled. It must be completely voluntary. Now, we feel led to do things, don't we? Led in such a way that's so strong, we feel compelled to do it. But notice that there's always our rational choice involved, that we must make a decision to go along With the Lord's leading. Otherwise, I think of of, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Why would our Lord talk about the importance of the intentions of our hearts compared to our outside actions unless there was this voluntariness in, in what we did? So none of it who do it for ten pieces of silver do it wholeheartedly. Their desire is not to please God, no matter what they say. Their desire is money. But in tension with this voluntariness, um, John Knox, the great Scottish, Scottish reformer, comments, quote, this is the worship due from you as rational creatures, end quote. It's due. You need, you should do this. Not in the sense of human rationality. That's not what what Knox is talking about. He's talking about in the terms of a proper understanding of truth as revealed in Jesus Christ. When we understand, really understand to the best of our ability, the revelation of Jesus Christ in God, there can be no other response, can there, other than giving ourselves wholly over to God and worship. We discussed this yesterday at the men's, monthly men's breakfast. It was a great meeting, and uh, God bless all the men that were there. They all contributed uh, very much to the conversation. It was a wonderful time. It was a blessing. But what we talked about is how we're not able to do this perfectly in this life. It's a process for us as earthbound mortals, our worship and our fulfilling the roles that, that, that God gives us. Our sanctification, what we we're talking about really, is a process that while it should always be moving forward, and if your sanctification is not moving forward, one should really re-examine their life. Um, we are not going to reach perfection until the Lord completes his work in us in the life everlasting uh, to come. There's no such thing As sinless perfection for us while we're here on earth, we're just fooling ourselves and actually putting ourselves on the same level as our Lord. And in case you're wondering, there's no clue as to what happened to Micah's other priest, his biological son. Perhaps he was defrocked in favor of this one with a better pedigree, hey, this this guy's a Levite son, you're out. Or maybe... That missing silver that we talked about last week, you know, we don't know where the rest of it went to, the 900 pieces of silver. Maybe somehow the son got wrapped up in that and he absconded with it. But that's just, that's a joke. That's just a speculative joke. This brings me to my last point. Uh, Material success does not equate, excuse me, material success does not equal God's blessing. And Micah makes this mistake. You know, he says at the end of, of our excerpt here, verse 13, he says, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as priest. Micah really views this Naar as a talisman, a, a good luck charm. It's not so, matter that, so much the matter that um, the case that he uh, you know, wants to please Yahweh by having a, a, a sure enough Levite here um, doing his priestly role. No, it's a way that he's manipulating God. His, His idea of religious worship has an underlying motivation to it that we should be seeing. And his religious motivation is, what's in it for me? Not much different than many people today. Micah offers worship to Yahweh so that he will gain materially. He thinks that he now, with all the correct stuff, he will ensure success. He's got the carved metal image. He's got the household gods. He's got the ephod. And now a genuine Levite. Ironically, Micah expects blessings from Yahweh while he disobeys Yahweh. He believes that the piling on of gods is acceptable to the one true God. Neither, neither Micah nor the Levite seems aware of the inappropriateness of this situation. And this is, these are, this is the detail that we should be picking up on. This, is, this isn't right. Aware that only Levites may serve in the worship service of Yahweh, Micah assumes that now that he's engaged a member of this tribe, he has automatic access to the resources of heaven. He's got the key The secret to unlock the door of all of God's treasure house. And surely, Yahweh will now be pleased with him because he's adopted a more orthodox approach to religious affairs. Yet he remains totally oblivious that his approach, specifically his capitalization on the presence of a Levite in order to manipulate Yahweh, is in truth thoroughly pagan. And rather than blessings, this will only bring curses. This is the height of irony here. And the Levites' actions demonstrate that even those set apart for religious service having been thoroughly have been thoroughly infected with the Canaanite disease at this time. Even the Levites are pagans. Nothing more, nothing less. In the words of Malachi, one of the latter prophets, writing Sometime in the fifth century before Christ, after the rebuilding of the temple, the Levites have corrupted their high calling, according to Malachi 2 8. He says to them, But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Instead of serving as an agent of life and peace, Revering Yahweh and standing in awe of his name, offering truth and righteous instruction, walking with Yahweh in peace and uprightness, turning Micah back from iniquity, preserving knowledge and serving as a messenger of Yahweh of hosts, this Levite has himself apostatized. He's lent his support to the perversion of his countrymen, failed to keep Yahweh's ways and demonstrated partiality to this man with money. In other words, he is a mere hireling. He is not a servant of God. As I said, Micah believes he's found the key to success, but ironically, he couldn't be more wrong. This is a major turning point in the plot. His personal fortunes, as we observe, have risen steadily since the beginning of the story. But from now on, nothing will go right for Micah. The Lord is going to show Micah and show us that he cannot be bought. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for your word. Thank you for this story of Micah and the Levite, Father let us ponder it. Let us, let us think on it, Lord, how it applies to our lives, Lord, so that we may worship you in truth and in spirit as you would have us do, Father. Because the worship of you and our relationship with you must be the top priority in our life, Father. Everything else falls in line behind that. Once we are right with you our lord then we can be right with our spouses with our children with our family with our neighbors and with our friends if we are not right with you lord we know from your word from these examples that nothing will go right we ask for your guidance send the holy spirit to guide us in these matters father that we may be obedient and faithful servants to you father Bless us as we go through this day. Bless this as your day, Father, as we celebrate our mothers, as we remember our mothers that have gone on, Father. Let us also keep you, keep the cross of Christ in focus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.